from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother or sister's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother or sister's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. So uh, right in the middle of the third grade, if you can recall the third grade, it is like what, um, I don't know, somehow in in the American education system, the third grade is like this pivotal time when curriculum shifts. There's like things happening in tiny little bodies. But the third grade, my family decides to up and move right in the middle of it all. And if you've ever experienced a move, then you're likely aware that moves can be a a little bit hectic. There is the packing and the cleaning and the loading. And then on the other side of that, there is the unloading, the unpacking, and then more cleaning. This is uh, what a, a move consists of. And then if you're like adulting in that season of the move, your life doesn't stop. Your life continues to go. It's not like you just say to your colleagues and your friends, like, just press pause for about a week. I'm going to do this thing, and then I'll join you. No, like all those things happen. And if you, if, if you know what I'm talking about, it's because your life is multidimensional. You have colleagues and friends, and perhaps you're in a season of life where you have like parental responsibilities, and all those dimensions in your life can be easily upended by a move. And it makes sense because you're literally taking up part of your life and then trying to put it down in a new place. But if you're a third grader, you don't really have like vocational responsibilities or parental responsibilities. Uh, And so most of the weight is social. In fact, it, it might even feel like the biggest cost to a move for the third grader, at least anecdotally mine was, uh, social. And in that season, all of a sudden, you're moving from all of the people you know. And if you grew up in a a time of human history where there is no AOL Instant Messenger, there is no MySpace, there is no Facebook, there is no Insta, Snapchat, whatever. If you grew up in that time of human history, then you know that to leave from one part of town and go to the other one is like a type of death. All you have is snail mail, and you don't even know how to address the envelope, and then you have to appeal to your parents, where do you put the stamp? It's like this grief. And so what my mom did, which I imagine a lot of you know, parents and guardians do still today, is they make the move this epic adventure. And a move does start up because there's bubble wrap and there's saran, there's like boxes and so you play in it and it, it becomes this adventure. And, and my move in the third grade started out as that. It was this epic adventure, but it soon gave way to be a grave disappointment. Uh, Suffice it to say, to be an awkward third grader is one thing, but then to be an awkward third grader transplanted into a new space with new students, with a new curriculum, is just like a thing. 
And you know how there's, um, maybe you've experienced this or like first or second hand, but uh, parents or well-intentioned loved ones will say kind of those kitschy little one-liners to get you through a tough moment. The one that I heard most often in that season was, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. That is a load of crack, crock, crap. It's, that's not true. And in turn, like what I, what I experience is that words do hurt. And in fact, we're really capable and able of hiding daggers in our words. Even third graders do these things. See, needless to say, that transition was a doozy. <laughs> and I know that that statement, the whole sticks and stones may break your bones, I know that that statement was said with the best of intentions. It was said with this idea that hopefully that little affirmation will blunt the deep wounding that those words inflicted on my fragile third grade soul. But instead, what was blunted was somewhat surprising. It's what we might just call self-awareness. See, that whole sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you kind of put up this barrier where I learned to turn off all of those hurts that were taking place. See, you can actually reset a broken bone, and with care, that thing can heal over time. And it happens more rapidly for young people, but it's still, when you're old, this can happen. Like, our, we have the capacity to heal those things, but words, when they are wounding words, they're like a splinter, they get in under the surface. And if left unattended, those splintering words, they can fester, they can like puss up, and then they can actually, they can hurt you deeply, long lasting hurt. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. That doesn't change reality. Instead, it kind of changes how you see reality it sets in motion this different way of viewing the world where regardless of how potent that past pain is, you are learning a skill to ignore the pain rather than facing the pain head on. And um, you know, over time, uh, I, I made friends. We're, you, I don't know if you knew this about yourself, but we're quite adaptable creatures, us human beings. So I made some friends in the third grade but what I failed to do, what I didn't even know to do was to like dig in and get those splinters out. And over time, that hurt ended up actually becoming a reference point from which I lived. I ended up being the person, you know, there's that, we hear this little things, oh, bullies are carrying a deep hurt. I ended up wounding in the same way I was wounded and lashing out of that insecurity, that hurt. I never went in so that healing could then set in. I never dug those things out so that healing could go in. Instead, I lived from that hurt and allowed it to actually be this defining part of my life for decades. And it's really only been in the past three or four years that I've begun to, with the help of others, notice these things and then attend to them. I had no idea how words spoken in the third grade would be pervasive even in my life to today. And despite how powerful those words were, there is a new word being spoken. That's where we're heading today. This word comes from Jesus' lips, and that word is mercy. You see, tucked into this seemingly like pointless anecdote from a third grade move is the bald truth that our words matter. Our words can shape the trajectory of our lives and the lives of others for good and for ill. Our words matter. 
And this isn't just like human conjecture. If you open up the scriptures and you look in the Genesis scroll, page one and two, what you're going to notice is that there is a word that's being spoken. And the word that is on repeat is this. It is good. Yahweh, the creator God, is like speaking creation into being. But that's amazing. In case, just press pause. I know that there's a lot of weird stuff happening in the Torah and Genesis specifically, but goodness is being spoken. That is the announcement. Good, good, good. Humanity comes on the scene very good. In other words, goodness is the vocational trajectory for humanity. Goodness rests. It sits in front of humanity to step into. And then another word is spoken. In the midst of the good, doubt is cast. And this other word that is spoken, it is, are you sure? All of a sudden, that word that's spoken into goodness, it, it, it brings this fragile trust to the surface. Words have the power to shape our life for good and for ill. From, from the third grade into our homes today, from work to church, from our closest friendships to like the random exchange with your local barista, our words matter. And let me just show you what I mean. We just heard this passage read, uh, Matthew 7, 1 to 6. Um, but if you just dive right into the middle of that passage, if you dive into verse 4, this is, this is what you hear. How can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. And just let the imagery, um, like, by the way, Jesus is funny. This is, an, uh, this is humor in the first century. Um, so I, I was going to bring a prop, and then I, I don't know, I waffled on it. Do I bring a prop? Am I that guy or not? So just go with me here. I'm going to use my arm. You ready for this, Manny? Okay. So plank, right? I'm not hailing anything. This is just a plank. Okay. Not a tasteful joke, but here we are. So this is a plank. So now, um, I want you to just, can I, thumbs up or thumbs down, am I able to see what, you are, what you're doing very well? I'm seeing, I, I saw over here a couple thumbs down. Okay, that's the imagery. So just let that awkward thing sit with you. Um, but, but instead of thinking about me awkward up here, um, notice the pressing question on Jesus' lips. It's in the first four words there. How can you say... In other words, how can you speak arrogantly about the condition of someone's life when you are ignorant of what plagues your own? How can you speak arrogantly about what's going on, the speck, when you are ignorant of the condition, the plank in your own eye? In this imagery, it is playful, but it's potent at the same time. And most of Jesus' parables, they are ridiculous for a reason because the absurdity of them makes you, to, makes you sit with them and then examine them. You kind of run them over in your mind. And I think the, the beauty of this little parable is we know the discomfort of something in our eye. Like this is, this is readily accessible. You get like a tiny little bug. Do you have it where the gnats are like flying around your eye and then one of them gets in there and it's like the world is crumbling all around you. All of a sudden there's tears. You're like writhing in pain. The other day, Silas, my little guy, he got like a, this little gnat like flew right into his eye and everything just like things flew and he's like right and it's just, and you want to help him get this thing out. But we, we know this. How much more a plank so, so Jesus is inviting us into the absurdity of our arrogance and our ignorance. 
And I just, I want us to, to, to let this move from the first century into the space that we're in. And I'm not saying that um, what I'm about to say is anything Jesus would say. However, these are like the kind of formulations, the arrogance and the ignorance that came to my mind. It, it might sound something like this. How can you say, keep your laws off my body with one breath and put them on theirs with the next? How can you say, only God can judge me and then tear into someone you hardly know on the socials? Or, or maybe uh, like a, a little more close to home here in a religious context, how can you declare, thus saith the Lord, and then abuse the innocent on the other side of that? The potent words on Jesus' lips are, how can you say? Because our words matter. They shape the reality that we settle into. When, when Jesus starts off in this passage back in verse 1, he starts off this way. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And when Jesus says this to my mind, he's not calling for like moral neutrality. He's like, all right, if you're going to follow Jesus, then there's no judgment to be had ever whatsoever. Do not do that. Because if, if he did that, then he would be functionally neutering everything he's just taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. Because how are you to know how to parse out anger or lust? How are you to know what it is to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness? Like there has to be a level of discernment involved. So Jesus is not asking for morally neutral followers. Instead, he's asking us to pick up discernment because Jesus is calling us and calling attention to our arrogance and our ignorance, the arrogance to pronounce a condemning verdict over someone as bigoted or ugly or irrelevant or just simply other, and the ignorance that we carry toward our woundedness or deeper still to, to the past patterns of sin that present themselves in our lives. Jesus is calling our attention to our arrogance and our ignorance so that we might move into humility and honesty. Humility that we may not actually know the story of that other person. And honesty that we actually have a lot of stuff, a lot of baggage that we carry internally. Even though we're really good at presenting well, we have some work to do with the Spirit. To, to live, the invitation here is to live like those who stand in the wake of Jesus' mercy. I really don't think that Jesus is offering up kind of sticks and stones sentiment. He's not trying to bypass the hurt. Jesus has the confidence that we can confront our self-forgetfulness and our arrogance. He actually thinks that we can move toward this, which sounds a bit audacious. So with that in mind, um, turn back to verse 1 and just hear this again. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. How's it, how's it going, this one, folks? In the Sermon on the Mount, each week feels a little bit like a punch in the gut. But coming to this text, I was just like, I, I, don't, know what to, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this. So um, let's just start slow. And if you start to feel like your tummy getting a little tight, that might be the Spirit of God just drawing, like, let that thing come to the surface. We can, like, yield that in prayer as we respond. But we'll start slow. So facts on the ground. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Um, the word that Jesus is trafficking in here in the Greek is this word krino. Give that a try. 
Krino, excellent. Uh, This word, both in English and in the Greek, has a really wide semantic range. That is, Krino can talk about a lot of types of judgment. It can be moral discernment. It can be in judicial matters. It can be things that are really simple and innocent. So, for example, uh, at, at the core of Krino is this thing about decision, surveying, evaluating, and very simple here. This forthcoming Saturday, the McCoys are going to host this ice cream social at their house. And again, this is like an easy plug. If you want to be connected into community here, or if you just want like a free treat, roll up to the ice cream social. But let's say that as you come to said ice cream social, that there's a question presented to you upon entrance. And the question goes like this, which flavor of ice cream is best, vanilla bean or chocolate? To which you would obviously say, and this is how church splits happen, right? (laughs) Oh, I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. No, not over something as small as vanilla bean. Obviously, you would say vanilla bean. If you said chocolate, we'll pray for you at the end of our gathering. Um, No, we make informal judgments like this all the time. The whole premise of American Idol is based on this type of crino. You get a bunch of random panelists who yell at people, and then they say, you're qualified, you're not qualified, and maybe they have some sort of repertoire skills that gives them the ability to discern their qualifications, but overall, it's just entertainment value to get you to watch it so ads can be placed and we can get sold more stuff. This type of crino is right there. Informal. There's also formal, judicial matters where there's a court of law and firmer boundaries. And all of this is available to Jesus. And none of this, to my mind, is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about judgment. In this case, it's, it's about this idea of stepping into a role of judge, to step into a space. Because the emphasis here is on misdirected judgment, or what we would call condemnation. It's, it's this idea that you would do not step into the role of judge, the one who condemns, or you too will experience that type of judgment. How are we doing here? Crino. See, it's telling that in Luke's parallel account to the gospel according to Matthew, uh, there is the Sermon on the Plain. So in Matthew, there is the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, there is a Sermon on the Plain. And in Luke 6, we read this, this kind of corresponding words to Jesus, Jesus talking on judgment. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. What is implicit in the Sermon on the Mount becomes explicit in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, and the emphasis is the same here in both. Do not pick up this misdirected judgment or it will come back on you. And, and I think what's, what's so curious to me about this is how significant of a feature of our discipleship to Jesus this is. So Jesus has, in the Sermon on the Mount so far, he's moved through the Beatitudes, talked about the moral fiber, the fabric of the type of community where God's spirit and presence would dwell, where justice would be embodied. He's talked about where our devotion lies. He's talked about how we handle our finances, our sexuality, all of these components of life. And here we come to this kind of shift, and now it's picking up what does it look like to embody this way of Jesus? And we encounter this, this idea of judgment. And this is so significant in the life of the follower of Jesus that later in the New Testament, Jesus' half-brother James is going to pick up on Jesus' words. This is what we read in James 4. James 4, 11, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. 
Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, or judges them, speaks against God's law and judges it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So as is the case in our teaching text, James is not really commenting on the speck. He's not commenting on the rightness or the wrongness of the speck. And this is significant, like the speck matters. It matters in both cases. But what's here is the filling out of our examination because what, what James and Jesus alike care about, their concern is for our response to the speck. You can actually kind of hear the mechanisms of this judgment. So see if this maps onto any of your experiences. This is, these are the mechanisms. We hear it right in verse 11. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against God's law and judges it. See, misdirected judgment, it moves from our perception, what we see, and from our perception, it moves down into our speech. And as it descends down into our speech, if it descends through this arrogance filter, whereby we assume we know what the condition of that person or circumstances are, then what comes out through that arrogance filter is accusation and slander, what, what James describes as speaking against. It's this idea of slanted speech. This is what I mean. Uh, earlier this summer, Jess, the boys, and myself, uh, we drove down to Pella for tulip time. It's our first time in Pella. And after we ate way too many fried food, um, we decided to get about our business. And so we went to see the sights. And by the sights, I mean the people. We were there for the people watching and the tulips, of course. And so we're like leaving this little area where we enjoyed these, I don't know, what are they called, Kate? Poffergies. I don't know. Fantastic. Yes. Your body may not really agree with you afterwards, but delicious in the moment. So we're setting out to go and see the sights, and at this first intersection, there is a, a man standing there, and he has a megaphone in one hand and a sign in the other, and both the megaphone and the sign told me that I was a sinner damned for hell. And so, in that moment, as you might imagine, I'm, I'm aware of the irony because Pella is like one of the most religiously saturated cities I've ever been in, and certainly in the state of Iowa, so the fact that he was there telling I get the irony, but nevertheless, I'm walking past, and I'll just, uh, nothing positive came to my mind. I looked at this man, I heard his speech, I read his sign, and immediately I began to enter into this commentary with Jessica about how those type of people, those type of people, no nuance, no tact, no self-awareness. Again, I'm aware of the irony that in that moment I also had no nuance, no self-awareness, no tact. But how those type of people are, those are the problem with the church. I, I, I like judged that guy so hard. Um, and what's funny is as I was thinking about this this past week, it's almost as though I imagine Jesus standing there with me going, I know, 
I know. I've been trying to tell him that there is another way that you can meet people where they're at. By the way, like, does he not know that in Matthew 7, 6, that whole thing about throwing your pearls before pigs, that's what this is all about? Maybe people just can't receive what's there. You need to meet them where they're at. What do pigs want? They want comfort and nutrients and maybe some mud. Like, so you got to meet them where they're at. But you know what? That darn megaphone's just too loud, so he won't listen to me. That's what I imagine Jesus is saying with me to him. And in that moment, what I'm doing there at that random intersection in Pella is I fashion a divide between me and Jesus and megaphone guy. And me and Jesus are obviously in the right on one side of this divide and megaphone guy is on the other side, obviously in the wrong. See, James may not be written to us, but it is certainly for us. The Sermon on the Mount may not be written to us, but it is certainly for us because the question that James puts there at the end of that little passage we read in James 4 is this question, who are we to judge our neighbor? And if I'm, like, if you feel like that, that, like, I don't know, thing in your gut, like you're imagining the type of speech patterns that have been flowing through your mouth, if you also sense condemnation, that is not Jesus. Jesus is not here to bring condemnation to those things. He's, however, here to release us from that so we might inhabit mercy because that is a new word that is being spoken over us and it is time for us to settle into Jesus' mercy because judgment in this matter was, was borderline ridiculous. Who was I to say how Jesus relates to megaphone guy? Who am I to say how Jesus is pursuing him? It's delusional to assume that I know how Jesus wants to deal with megaphone guy. And I would dare say the same thing, but unless I remove the plank, how can I ever attend to the speck? Are we getting this? How are we doing, folks? Well, you're like, you're calling out my judgment, so I'm not very happy with this right now. But let that sink in, because here's what Jesus is going to say next to us. After we feel that, hear this in verse 5. This will encourage your spirit. You hypocrite! First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. See, we've imported a bunch of negative connotations with hypocrisy, and Jesus, he's just simply talking about masks. Perhaps there is a negative connotation, but the, 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 the thing is that Jesus grew up not too far from a place where there is a theater, and the hypocrites are the actors. They're the ones who are wearing a mask. In other words, he's saying, put down the mask. The arrogance and the ignorance, put that down so that you might step into humility and honesty. See how I see you and in turn of that, be honest with where you are. Stop playing the judge. Receive the healing you need before you go on pretending that you can help other people. This is, I was sharing this this morning with one of the Joshes, one of the many Joshes here in our community. Um, but the question comes to me, so how's your week going? And I'm like, oh gosh, that's a, a lot, a lot there. Um, but our, our eldest boy, we only have two, so eldest sounds more like stately, but so our, our eldest boy, um, he has been like a firecracker. And it's writhing, it's like, what in the world is going on? And at some point it becomes like a, a control thing. I feel myself like powering up. And generally it's these, I've said this before, so sorry if you've heard it. It's like these confined spaces, like the power dynamics come to a head in the bathroom. Like, no, I will not put on my jammies or no, I will not take them off or no, I will not brush my teeth. And it's like, then it turns from, this is no longer a negotiation. I am telling you. And, uh, 
And in those moments, like there is something that is coming up. And our house is really tiny and the walls are porous because it's like 110 years old. And Jessica can hear all of the activity coming from this little Jack and Jill bathroom. And so uh, she will come and she'll give a little, how are we doing? And I'm like, you know, you know how we're doing. <laughs> so my, my point is this is like, if I don't receive the healing, if I actually don't receive the gift of her stepping in, there will be something that happens in that moment that I will regret. My speech will actually, I'll be throwing daggers at my three-year-old little guy. I, I need her to step in. You know, the curious thing about this passage is I didn't really notice I, how, how steeped it is in here. Who is it that the help is going to and from? Hear this again. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother or sister's eye. To whom is the help being extended? It's our brothers and sisters. This is like one of the dominant images that are used in the New Testament to talk about how we relate to others who are following Jesus is brother and sister. And I, I didn't realize how explicit this was until this past week. See, Jesus is not offering a general word to the wider world. This is a message to you and to me, to those who are picking up our discipleship to Jesus, who are picking up our cross to try and follow him daily. This is the word to us. Because in these places, the arrogance and the condemnation and the self-forgetfulness, it is not about those folks out there. This is a message for you and for me which is rather sobering. So why? Why is it that Jesus is bringing a stern word to, to those who would follow him? Because I think that he wants us to stand as those who are marked by his mercy. And as we stand as those marked by his mercy, then we will be able to make space for others to do the same. But we're fooling ourselves if we think that we can give what we have not inhabited. If I think that I'm just going to extend mercy, but I've never received the mercy of God, I'm fooling myself. See, so much of this is that I think that we have to confront our arrogance and our ignorance so that we might be able to receive. By the way, that is what next week is entirely about, is opening ourselves up to the generosity of the Father. But for now, the word that's in front of us is mercy. By the way, there's this distinction between grace and mercy that I've found helpful. If, if grace is getting what you don't deserve, very simple, Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Hear this. If grace is getting, that is receiving a gift that, that otherwise you have no merit for, you didn't work for it, mercy is not getting what you do deserve. It is, the, it is this beautiful thing that we get to inhabit. And the tragedy is that, is that though James will say that mercy has triumphed over judgment, we experience far more condemnation and judgment than mercy. See, arrogance is often the mask of our shame. There's this deep woundedness that we carry, these splinters in our soul. And where guilt is saying something like what you've done is wrong, shame is saying you are wrong for what you've done. And those things have festered and the word of Jesus is coming to us this morning. However long you've been following Jesus, maybe for a long time, maybe for a short time, maybe in fits and starts, but the word that is coming to this community today is that there is mercy on offer. 
mercy that wants to go into those places, actually go into the darkness beneath the skin so that we might shape, be reshaped by the living God. Just imagine this for a moment. Imagine that your deepest, darkest secrets, your deepest shame was laid bare. Now imagine that that was done here at church. And if some of you are like, okay, now I feel anxious because I know in the past Kyle will like, you'll ask me to do things that are uncomfortable. I'm not gonna ask any of us to like turn to your neighbor and share your shame. That would be inappropriate. Um, but just imagine that. Like the, the feelings that that elicits. Perhaps there's things that come to your mind. You like know the thing I'm talking about, the shame that you carry, the sin that is wedged in there that's either been done to you or that you participate in. Imagine that that is exposed. Exposure like that is like a waking nightmare. It, like it haunts our days. And it's there in the exposure of our shame that Jesus wants to come. It is there in that place of deepest pain that Jesus is there to speak mercy because Jesus comes to actually bring healing, not to heap condemnation on us. And I, I firmly believe, I have experienced that there is like breakthrough that can happen through the Spirit. And yes, and amen, I hope that that takes place even as we respond and worship that we would feel a, a loosening of the grip of shame. But so often what happens, and I think this, and we just see this play out throughout the scriptures that God intends to bestow, like to drench his people in mercy through one another so that we who've experienced mercy might extend mercy to one another. He speaks it over us so that he might move it through us. And I hope what we see is that Jesus cares both about the speck and the plank and how whatever you think might be plaguing your vision, Jesus cares about that. He sees that. And if that sounds churchy and cliche and hallmarky, just work through the New Testament. Allow it to expose you and tell me that you don't need a little bit of that hallmarky action because we are carrying things that are too heavy to carry any longer. But Jesus is here to say, lay down that burden. I have another instrument by which you can carry that burden. It can actually be light. How can we speak arrogantly about the condition of someone's life when we are ignorant of what plagues our own? See, um, freedom can be really scary. Like if Jesus is here to invite us into the freedom where shame no longer holds us, that's... That's really intense. How many here have seen um, Shawshank Redemption? Yeah, there is this idea about being released from captivity, but then there's also the free, like the, like the fear of freedom, that you, if all you've known for your whole life is what it is to be behind the bars of captivity, it might sound more promising to stay there because the prospect of freedom is too much to bear. So that's why we actually have one another. We have those little, not, how, how's it going? Showing up to an ice cream social is lovely if you're like lactose tolerant. But you know what it is? It's actually cultivating these deep webs of relational trust where our fragile trust can be built up so we can actually receive somebody coming in to bring healing. Is this making sense, folks? Let's get, like, I'm not asking us to be who we're not. Like, I'm not saying let's be Pentecostal, but like, there's something on offer in this. And if you've ever felt this, like how Jesus' love feels foreign to you, or you remember a season where the conquering love of Jesus, you're like, that sounds cool, but a bit, I don't know. Um, let Jesus' words here at the end be a gift to you. Do not give dogs what is sacred. 
Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. There's like eight different directions New Testament scholars will go, and you may be wondering, how in the heck are we going to tie this thing into a bow? Let's try it. Um, mercy may not map onto your friend's life. Mercy might actually feel foreign to you in this season. Here's what I mean. Picture me and Griffin in that tiny little bathroom, me trying to get control in this knock. Um, there are moments when I want nothing to do with that mercy because I just want my own way. And as that mercy is extended, I actually throw it back. I turn around with like venom on my lips and daggers in my words. So too, if there is somebody who has no desire for the mercy of Jesus, no matter how well the presentation goes or how good the intentions are, it might actually like heap a different type of woundedness into their soul. So let's just ask dog owners in here, Faith, um, what do dogs like? Treats. They want them treats. I don't, I don't think any of us have pigs, but um, pigs, I'm guessing, they want like treats. In other words, what they want is provision and care. See, we may have this desire to like, we've experienced God's mercy, so we desperately want our, our like friends or family or colleagues to experience that in kind. But what if we embodied mercy rather than heaping that on them? It'd just be a totally different reality that we get to step into. What if we offered provision and demonstrated care? What if we like became the people who were situated in mercy and from that moved toward others? Do you know how freeing that is to not have to hold, like have to like feel like, oh my gosh, I have to win their soul. Um, that's not ours to do. The spirit of the living God will awaken us and awaken whomever as the spirit moves. The wind is gonna blow. We don't know where it's coming from or what's going on there. But when we embody mercy, we demonstrate this type of care that we've received. We start to like confront our arrogance with humility and confront our ignorance with honesty. This is the call to Jesus, the call from Jesus to us.